There are some sounds that instantly throw you back to a time and place. Like this one. The opening sequence to Hard Grit is iconic. The heartbeat, the distorted images, the guitar chords. And the scream. There was something surprising I didn't know about this. Something that the film's cult star, Seb Grieve, told me. Had John Min just shown up that day at your door and said, oh, do you want to go climbing? Or Yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. I feel like the stars came into line, isn't it, really? It's cold day. John Min turned up and Rich said, let's go and film it. So, well, he was really nice. He just he, he knew I was going out there because, like, OK, you're going out. We better film it. <laughs> we'll just be quiet. Excellent. Little did John Min know. But perhaps I shouldn't really be surprised by this. It's totally in keeping with the zeitgeist that Hard Grit captures. That weird mix of eccentricity, motivation, planning. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. So let's backtrack a bit. Hard Grit came out in 1998. Directed by Rich Heap, produced by Mark Turnbull. And it gave us an insight into the top dogs and the likely lads of the gritstone scene. Many of the routes in the film were the hardest gritstone lines around. And since their first ascents, they'd lain dormant. And their reputations were building. Hard Grit became a film about busting one myth, while creating a new mythology of its own. It brought headpointing into the mainstream. Earlier this year, I went for a beer with Niall Grimes who wrote the history section for the film. Before he knew it, I was doing E8s. I did E8s just in time, because a little bit later it became really uncool to do E8s, because it was just like a bunch of people like me who shouldn't be doing E8s were doing all the E8s, and kind of eventually that wore away the magic of them all. was... What when was was it nineteen nineties hard grit nineteen ninety six or ninety seven or something? Yeah. You'd see lots of photographs in magazines of grit, but there was there was no, there was no I could be contradicted no real photograph of anything of anyone on anything harder than E six on grit. Every photograph you saw was a rope around the corner type thing of Neil Gresham and the end of the affair type of thing. But there's a Ray Wood had got the rope around behind the rat, and that's all the photographs that you saw in magazines of that elk were all staged shots. There's no genuine shots. And that a camera. And, and that's what one of the things made Hard Grit amazing because it suddenly went from having no photographs of a real E7 lead to having actual footage of E7 leads because footage was kind of rare back then, wasn't it? And I'd, so I brought me a camera. And I photographed Seb doing Parthian shot. And I got really excited about this on the lead. And there was time of slides. And I brought the slides back for processing. And I held them all up. And the colours were beautiful. The exposures were amazing. When I looked, I'd focused on the, the back on the background of Burbage Valley. So all the actual photographs of Seb, he's out of focus in them all, apart from a couple of them falling off on an earlier ascent. So that's, that's one of the things that made Parthian or Hard Grit really interesting. The, this leap from no photographs... Off in a gate 
to footage of an ear. I think he started out helping Johnny out in an editing suite and it was just typical Johnny-ness. And then he ended, Johnny headed off and left the camera with him and he just started taking it out and filming us. To actually have somebody videoing these ascents was crazy. And, he, you know, video cameras are great because they're silent. You don't have the sound of the shutter. So that helps. And he was great because he was a, a very talented climber as well. And he wasn't like a, a, a photographer or anything like that. So he was just one of your mates coming out with a camera and he was you couldn't really tell he was there. Uh, and he was very good about it. He didn't want to push you. He was very aware of that. I think one of the things that made Hard Grit so successful was that Rich Heap was very much part of the scene that he was trying to capture. Here he is. You know, I was a full-time climber for two to three years, you know, stints out in America, Australia. But um, as it was kind of coming to the end of that, I was like, oh, I just can't spend all my days climbing. So I started doing a video production course one day a week and also doing a photography A-level. So I'd help. I ended out, um, Johnny Dawes approached me to help finish the editing of Best Forgotten Art. And then he went off to America and left me with his camera. And he, he's just, if, he said he was probably going for about two weeks and it turned out to be like about six months. And over that time, I accrued all the hard grip. I think the first thing we filmed or I filmed was going out with Bentley to do Renegade Master. And it was like, either I take the camera and film it or I stand underneath him waiting for him to fall on top of me. (laughs) It seemed like a really good bet to go and film it. And, you know, that was, again, a good laugh because, you know, it was there was a load of spotters like Andy Harris. I think uh, Robin Barker was there and stuff. And it was just like we took out um, thermo rests. That was it. It was before bouldering mats, really. So yeah, we had we had thermarest to catch him on. Yeah, so that was that was that was the first thing. I can't remember what what order stuff was filmed in. I think you know I think um, what Richard Richard Ecke had came. So I mean, Seb because he'd been travelling a bit, he'd been to Australia and stuff. It, it was starting to be like a focal point for people that were passing through Sheffield, like Dave Jones, who I'd met when I was out in Australia, um, and. You know, he was really prolific when he came over that winter. He was just wanting to do everything. So, you know, he went on loads and loads of things just to try. um, You know, like he went on Born Slippy or whatever it is, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Braille Trail. Um, You know, we were both messing around on Meshuggah at the same time as, as Seb. So yeah, he was he was being really prolific. Then you know Richard Eckyhead had obviously been sold the myth of hard grit by, or you know, of, sorry, of, of gritstone by Seb. So when he came over and stayed, you know, he he wanted to do Master's Edge. So yeah, I was just kind of like tagged along on a lot of those, you know, trips out. And I, I wasn't like a limpet though, because you know, like because I was I was instrumental in like um, going out on on Meshuggah with Seb. You know, it was like me and him trying to figure out how to do it because, you know, we were just climbing together. But I was never, I, I never had the capacity to keep it together on a hard grit route. I mean, I did a few E7s, but like that step up to I'm going to deck it, I could never keep it together. Because we were there at the, you know, at the crack when all this stuff was going on, you just knew it was going to be amazing. Before I arrived in Sheffield and before I was living with Seb, he'd heard about all the mythology of 
you know, Gritstone Ascent. She heard all the debate around the first ascent of uh, Parthian shot and stuff. And then you're there when the second ascent's going on. And you just knew, like, you you were in a special place. You could feel it, like, all the B layers and stuff. I mean, Be- um, Seb, he, t- like, tried to keep it all nice and calm and friendly. And, you know, mates were going along. It was, you know, like a day out at the crack. And, like, as a person that was there documenting it, I was, you know, I lived with Seb and I was a good mate of Seb's. So that's why I had access to it. But, you know, I was very aware that, to, to maintain that mates at the crag feel and not to be intrusive or anything. And, you know, like stuff, if you listen to how the questions are delivered to him, they're kind of a bit left fieldy. How did you sleep last night type things? They're just very gentle and they're not over probing. And yeah, so you, yeah, you knew what you knew that to just to be there, you, you kind of been welcomed into the inner circle, so to speak, to see this stuff. And you knew that nobody ever usually went to these. It was usually the climber and the bee layer. You know, there was no, no documenting of it before. Even if you look for photos, I think there's, um, I think Seb had a photo of him doing Gaia and it was taken by someone passing with a dog who just snapped it off and gave him his address and said, Oh, I'll post that off to you. While Hard Grit captured lots of difficult ascents from a range of climbers, the one that really sticks in my mind is Seb Grief. And he really embodies the kind of central theme of the film. And there's that question. Is Seb mad? Because that's how he seems. For example, whenever Seb was doing a Parthian shot... And I was someone who had phoned up looking for a B-layer. That sort of that sort of character, you know, like a sort of, oh, try that person, they might come out. And I think at this time I was going out with his sister, whether that was before Hard Grit or after, maybe it was before Hard Grit, so I was going out with Seb's sister. Uh, so I knew him that way and would go parties in his house. And Seb was good fun to be around. But uh, there was this sort of whole thing where he wanted B-layers to go out to the party and shot and nobody ever wanted to go, so... He did well to find anyone ever. So through that, I became familiar. I can't tell you how I know Rich, how I know Seb, how I got involved in it. But it's a mixture of all those things, like just being around. and uh, Because, you know, you look back and you think things are things, but things are only things and you look back and things. And at the time, they're just uh, very random events stacked up in some sequence that, that when you try and assemble them in the future, you can't remember what the sequence was because at the time... The relevance was minimal of each of these events. Parthian shot was a an A-list climb, and Seb was an A-list climber. Seb was a sort of uh, like a have a go hero, and he got up some things uh, on grit like uh, Gaia, and he didn't deserve to get up Gaia. This sounds really unfair, and I don't mean it to be unfair, but I'm trying to put across why Seb trying Parthian shop just seemed like a madness, madness act. But he, uh, he kept at it, and, and everyone really loved the fact that he was trying it, but they didn't. It was like, uh, you know, some guy in the local gym trying to keep arranging a fight with Mike Tyson. He keeps phoning Mike Tyson's agent to see, could he come and could we have a fight? It was a bit like that. I don't know. I don't mean Mike Tyson today, but I mean Mike Tyson from the nineties. 
Uh, my name's Bob, and I'd really love to fight Mike. Any chance I could fight Mike? No. Don't don't phone back here again. I was Seb looking for billiards for Parthian, Sean. Well, like with Mashuga, I'd been out when he'd been top roping it. So I think he'd top roped it three times in a day before he went. I mean, on the, I think on the day, he was still holding it in. So the the go before, he actually fell off on top rope before he actually went for the for the um, head point. So, yeah, it was completely nerve-wracking. I think you, you can't just completely leave it behind that. There, there are consequences, and you're sort of outside of their head. Ali! Oh, come on. Yeah, so you can... Yeah, you're kind of living it how you'd... Uh, you know, you'd live it yourself on, on the rock. So, you know, because I was always really nervous as a climber way way above gear i um i was just like like that when you and especially like stuff like when he was rocking over on party and shot it was utterly you know how in mouth i i always remember the first day i looked at the looked down the roof and i looked at it from the top you look down knowing that there's a very steep face on this underneath you know like, and there's this slab and you're like so you're going from a steep face to a slab, you've got to rock over. That's incredible. <laughs> so I always have that in the back of my mind when I was trying it. It's like, oh, if I can ever do that, I'd be made up. The first time up, it was like, oh my God, everybody's mindset was that Seb must not fall off. He must not fall onto that shipwreck of a flake. Well, that was the bit about Seb doing Parthian shot. I was just walking in the street and he met me. He just came in and just asked me to freestyle into the mic, basically. That's all that was. There's no script to that. It was just like, I can't, whether, no, there wasn't even any footage. He just sort of told me to ramble on for a bit. So I just got a mic and just sat down and rambled on. There was two days I was involved in bailing him on the axis ascent. And the first day, I think about really stress because everyone was coming along. There's loads of people there and he was the main event. And it was kind of probably a lot of pressure on him in terms of, on top of doing some really stressful climb. But the day that he did it, we'd already been to Millstone and Richard had done Masses Edge. So it was more part of a, a climbing day out rather than a sort of a spectacle day out. And I think that's one of the things that contributed to making it okay for him on that day and making him more relaxed. Like all the way through Hargrit, you're you're kind of this slightly mad character, but actually, yeah, you're you're you are really calculated. You know, you're the only one who's looked really closely at the flake on Parthian shot, I guess, and judged that it's probably all right. Yeah. Um. So that was crazy. The the Parthian shot thing was the uh, epitome of like you had to go against the flow. Really, like everybody's like, it's death. The flake's gonna snap. Blah, 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 blah. There's loads of that. And I was like, okay, so the snake's flake's going to snap. Let's see how much gear we can get in it. It's really complicated to do. I took, I had about 11 bits of gear in it, and I couldn't place them on the lead. I wasn't strong enough. Um, so I didn't. Um, it subsequently had a sense where the gear was placed on the lead by my friends and mates who used all my gear. Uh, beta. So I literally had a load of gear. And I, I basically went on the assumption, like, okay, if the top breaks kind of have some gear in the middle and if the middle comes out so is the gear so there's three bits of gear so i just like worked it out like that okay that's that's probably going to be all right you know there's a lot of gear and there's three sections of gear in three different bits of the plate as it happens the bit that will i've got the guy who broke it 
broke was the top, which took all the brunt of the falls. But if if I presume if we'd had the full set of gear in there, something would have held because it all held body weight. Everything held body weight. No, I'm out of it. But going against that flow of everybody going like, yeah, it's all going to rip. It's just going to rip. The flake's no good. <laughs> you had to be quite strong-minded to go against that, and that is all your peers saying that. So, I'll tell you one thing about hard grit. You know, uh, and that freestyle thing I did about uh, the shipwreck of the flake. A couple of years previous to that, I'd been in the uh, Donegal climbing with, with a bunch of Irish friends, one of them, Brian Callan. And Brian went up there do this route that I'd just led, or maybe he seconded me. And there's a, a flake in the roof. And as he got to the top, he said that it sounded like a shipwreck because it creaked a lot. And uh, we all laughed. And a couple of years later, I'm recording Hard Grit, and I'm just sort of sat in Ritz's thing. And I, sort of, I made this phrase, a shipwreck of a flake. And it was sampling this joke Brian had made some years earlier. And when Brian saw Hard Grit, he, he said, oh, that was my line. And it was his line. So it's kind of, it's funny that we both remembered the fact that the shipwreck thing was his line, that I just said it on, on camera, then it becomes my line. Yeah. But it was actually Brian's line all along. And every time, not every time we see each other, but it does come up every now and again, the fact that I nicked his, his gag, the shipwreck gag. Yeah, and that's the big one. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah. He never got a penny. No. <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> so it's funny, just those little sort of uh, the way things get passed around, isn't it? And yeah. what, uh, because it's just a word, but it sort of becomes more than a word through repetition. Or because hard grit has gone into the brainstem, hasn't it? The climbing brainstem. I wonder if that central myth starts to unravel here. Seb the madman. While capturing these ascents live has a sort of artistic purity, what Mark and Rich were really capturing was the result of careful engineering. Seb wasn't really mad at all. I'd done a lot of hard. I'd done a lot of grit routes. Started a long time before hard grit was made. I was kind of doing grit stone. I have to look it up in my diary. Uh, first sort of hard, what I would call hard grit, was sort of a repeat of. Uh, um, a route in Dupes Quarry, Dharma, which is a beautiful wall, and I just cleaned it again because it's filthy, and then top roped it, and then eventually got my mate Stu to call in on the way home from Raven Tour because everybody was sport climbing, and do it, and then uh, and then I went on and did other stuff like Braille Trail. Braille Trail was great because at that time, all of these routes had this reputation that was, in my opinion, way bigger than them. They weren't actually that hard. They had this reputation that they were just death. Nobody ever repeated them. Only Johnny Dawes can do them. Massive. And then that put on the fear of God in everybody. Nobody would go near them. And you, what you actually found is when you when you looked at them, they're actually, oh, it's not that bad, actually. Yeah, I might be able to do this. Um Braille trail was great because you had to go and buy your own pegs. Went and bought some pegs, and uh, there was soft steel. You sat on the peg, and it just came out of the hole. It extruded out. I was like, right, need better pegs than that. Better go and get some hardened steel, proper black diamond, lost arrows. So we went and bought those, and then like, oh, they don't fit. I've got to cut them up. So I had a hacksaw and 
oh, they're going to slide out. I'll put some cardboard on them. So there was all this making your own gear thing for Braille Show, which was really good fun. And then there's this nail that came out as well. I was like, ah, oh, six-inch nail with a big fat head on it tied off with a bit of thin tape. That was used. So I made all my own gear and pushed it in. And that's what Johnny said in his description. I remember it being in the stony new route. But, and, and it was great to try that and do it. So that was that was good fun. And uh, and then and then I think the next thing I did after that was Gaia. And Gaia was around the time that that root film Stone Monkey came out. And I tried it for a long time. And then I was like, I couldn't get anybody to hold my rope. So I was going to solo it one day. <laughs> glad I didn't. That would have been scary. Um, but also, I'm also glad I didn't because uh, I don't think anybody would have believed me. <laughs> um, and that was interesting to do that route because my friend Phil, who held my ropes, he got his wife to take pictures all the way up. And they're not particularly good slides, but I remember looking at, my, at them on the slide projector and uh, we're going, oh, yeah, you're going to deck out from there. You're going to definitely deck out from there. Oh, you're going to deck out from there. And those were like all the way up, virtually from halfway up the groove. So the opening sequence on Hard Grip is Jean-Min Trin 2 trying Gaia. Now, Jean-Min Trin 2 was a good climber. He could climb HC and Gaia 7B plus, the top rope. Jean-Min had a habit of turning up on my doorstep and say, hey, hello. Uh, how are you, Seb? And then his next question would be, uh, are you going climbing today? I'm like, yes. Can I come? Yes. <laughs> what are we doing? We went out and did all sorts of things. But then that day he came out, did try Gaia. That was kind of interesting. That day. <laughs> I must have climbed a sugar before he fell off that because we had to go to the hospital after that. And <laughs> I'm holding his rope. And he he literally starts to scrabble. And I'm like, I'm not running yet. I'm not running yet. Until I could see air between all of his limbs i was like could still hold on and then he's in mid-flight and i'm thinking well he's going to deck out because he's fallen off from that place we all said everybody would deck out from but i ran anyway and he somehow stayed off the deck which was kind of incredible and uh, that's the opening sequence to hard grit and you know he got away really lightly just um cut his leg badly and that was just sewn up with a few stitches in chesterfield hospital when Dave Jones was um, around, it was it was usually me and Dave going climbing together. So, like when he was doing Braille Trail, I just needed someone to hold a camera because um, because it was just me and Dave. If you if you watch the film, it's me beeling, and uh, so he came along. I I'm trying to think how I met him or had come across him, but it was he was out of the film school. And he was part of the climbing scene, not really my scene, but, um, you know, he was, he was living in Netheredge or Sharrow. So yeah, I asked him to come along and then there was something else. And then actually it just felt, felt better to have a couple of you doing it. I think it's easier to push yourself when there's a couple of you making a film. I've always found that right from, you know, from then right through till now, I kind of always feel that if there's two of you, um, doing it one it's more fun and two usually there's a lot of insecurity about it and there's actually a lot more work than you ever contemplate so yeah that's that that's why mark came on board so i think what he brought to it i think he brought uh, a little bit more professionalism probably um it um gave me a bit more drive because you yeah you had someone there to encourage you um 
And yeah, when it came to the editing, he was he was a good editor, and we pretty much tagged. We were like a tag team. We didn't have very long. You know, it was in the days where we had to hire an edit suite. So we literally hi- uh, worked day and night. So Mark would do the day shift, and then I would take over at nine o'clock at night and carry on through till about five in the morning. And then he would start again at nine or ten um, in the morning. And we, yeah, we would look through each other's stuff and re edit it and rework it and also like sometimes when you've worked on something for ages you just hate it and you're really bored of it and to have someone come in and go wow that's great that's so exciting so yeah I think that that was a good thing and really you you know he was really good at well we both came good at really just you know condensing the stuff down to like three minute bite-sized pieces I think we edited for nine days I think so, I mean, there were pretty much, what, 18, 19 hour days. Then we had a break for probably about three months where we started to fill in little gaps and stuff where we felt like it would be better. Um, we, I think we did the, all the intro stuff then. I think we might have gone out and got John done in that period. And then, yeah, we went back and probably edited about another five days. So yeah, really quick. I mean, when I, I've been on BBC documentaries, which have felt really quick, and those have been five-week edits. Come on. Yeah, I used to spend uh, every year. I used to go and look for new routes. Still look for new routes, by the way. I really like looking for new routes. But I have a list. I'd have a list like, okay, it's 10 lines. I'm going to go and try on the grid. And I'd just work my way through them. And then I'd, by the time you got to number three, you'd already found something really good to climb. And usually wouldn't get to the end of the list. So yeah. with Meshuggah, I'd, uh, years ago, I'd gone out to try that. That was called the Promontory Traverser Rat. Really well-known, last standing problem on the grid. And uh, I, years ago, and I can't remember the dates, I'd gone out to try it. And I got there and there was a bunch of people abseiling down it. I was like, shucks. <laughs> I'll go and try that other thing around the corner. What's it called? Gaia. I'll go and try that instead. And that's when I started trying Gaia. Uh, anyway, I, I did Gaia and then I went back and tried it over the years and it was always climbed on the left-hand side. At, they reckoned it was probably about French 8B. It was absolutely nails. Couldn't touch it. And you go back every year, I'll try that rat again, I'll go and try that rat again. And then eventually one year I try it and then my friend comes out and he's Quentin Fisher. I know him really well. He's, I used to work with him in Leeds University and we used to have a laugh together. And he'd always turn up with his dog. His dog had come first. And then he just turns up this day and he's like, yeah, yeah, what are you trying? I'm trying this. I said, oh, yeah. Why don't you try the right-hand side? And it was his idea. Like, try what about us? And he loved jumping between holds. So it was kind of like a typical Quentin thing. Miss out all the holds, jump to the top. <clears throat> he was a big guy like me. We just started trying it like that, and then it suddenly started falling into place. It was like, holy moly, I, this is a thing. I could do this. And then, then I just tried it over a few more days and eventually got it in a one I used to start talking on routes because um, I found people encouraging me was distracting me, and that actually started on Grail Trail. And I, I didn't say I, – I found people encouraging me. It really put my concentration off, and then I fell off. So then I uh, – one of the ways to psych myself up was to talk. Cheeky little thing. I know what you are thinking. I will have you yet. 
about and then had the added benefit that everybody else was a they I couldn't hear anybody else anyway because I was talking and they all shut up because they thought I was about to come off <laughs> so it's really great so it's like it's it was just my internal psych you know it wasn't anything more than that <laughs> so yeah and that I, I guess that spooked a lot of people going back to your point about the conditions I kind of knew that it was quite warm back then I knew that if it got colder it would get easier because of its the nature of the grit and the day we did it, it was like really cold it was like this is like sticky <laughs> so you know you, you know you're on that day because you've got that extra factor of stickiness that you you forget every year how, how much better it's going to go but it just goes really sticky on a cold day <laughs> and i've been trying it quite a bit on warmer days and still being able to top rope it and then when it dropped got to that cold day and and then you know i had sean minna turned up and they got a the film crew there. <laughs> and there was a few other people to spot basically I had enough spotters and it was cold i was like I, I think i need to do it today in the fucking hole you tosser horrible feeling horrible feeling because i know you've gone up that thing <laughs> That's why you stop doing it because you don't feel very happy before you do it, you know what I mean? Hey, it's all in the mind. Yeah. <laughs> yes! Yes! And I'd say, yeah, that like the turning point in the whole film was when we went out and uh, filmed Meshuga, and it was the same day that Jean Min fell off of Gaia, and uh, it was probably. I don't know, maybe like three months into the process, because I think it was just after Christmas time. And as we walked away from the crag, you were kind of shell-shocked because Jean Min was like off the hospital to have his shin looked at. Um, but also, yeah, you just were like thinking, oh my God, that was just astonishing to witness and be around. And you just realised that, you know, we'd filmed it and they had it in a can and it was just going to be mega and actually that was when we started trying a lot harder with the film like started to think oh my god we could we need to make something that's going to do this stuff justice it can't just be throw away so then it you know it just infiltrated everything like getting a better soundtrack and and making sure that we got all the big stars like tracking jerry down to do samson and tracking john dunn down you know so yeah that was when we knew that there was it was going to be good suddenly he got all these little clips of people doing first ascents and he made this trailer and it was like oh i've got something here i can make a film and, and it kind of went from there and then it took another I, I don't know how long it took him another year to film all the other material lots of stuff happened in that year which was great we had like a really big unveiling in outside where we knew um dickie turnbull um yeah we said hey we've got this trailer can we come and put it on on your telly and yeah, it just went on for the whole day. And then we took it away. So that so that there was like, there'd been a buzz created about it. And then that was it, it was gone. Before um, we started editing Hard Grit, we went and had two days of lessons with this guy. We were actually um, taught to edit by Dawn Shadforth, who went on to direct Carly Minogue's I Can't Get You Out of My Head. My little claim to fame. <laughs> had done the, uh, did her video. And Mantronic, she's done loads of stuff. But yeah, she was just kicking around Sheffield, you know, trying to make it as a music film director. 
there's little bits when you've watched it when you're editing that you really fall in love with and yeah the nod that Leo does at the top of End of the Affair where he kind of nods to himself like yeah done it he's like his own little private moment yeah I love, love that I feel it was lucky for me to be in that film it just happened that Rich was there it just happened that he decided to make a film and we just happened to be climbing those routes at that time and because it it almost made Gritstone popular again. Well, it did make Hard Gritstone popular again, without a doubt, because it would probably have just chunted along a little bit more. But once that film came out, it kind of made it cool <laughs> to go out and do those things. So... Uh... It was just a thing we were doing. It was sort of... You know, you know when you're doing something and... What it, what it is... What it is beyond the act you're involved in is of no relevance because all you're doing is is that thing, whether that's a, a climb or a, a film or a, a book. For me, you're just involved in that creative process. And but no, I suppose Hard Grit did catch the imagination in a... Uh, it's a timing thing, isn't it? As much as, you know, there's been various climbing films like Stone Monkey or Hard Grit or what other ones? There was a really good Chris Sharma one called Rampage and these ones were just at the right time where they, they caught something on its, just in its way up uh, and there was, maybe there was already some sort of upswelling which just became part of the upswelling, these films became part of the reason why things become more popular maybe yeah, well, I, I say I, I kind of haven't really thought about it very much. And then when we did this recent screening at the Abbeydale Picture House, you know, with a really big crowd of 300 people and everyone was enwrapped and I hadn't seen it for, for years. Um, and yeah, I was just like, wow, this is actually really, really exciting. You know, there, we watched the bit where Leo's on the end of the affair and it was it was proper edge of the sea. It felt really, really exciting to watch and it even though you knew he was going to do it, you you know, there's still the tension there. You know, nobody looks like they are got it nailed, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still really pleased with it. And the fact that I didn't start out knowing what I, I – knowing nothing and ended up with something that sort of feels like it, uh, you know, has the test of time and captures a moment. I think that's what's cool about it. Unfortunately, usually when you finish films, you hate them. And it was actually when I went to Australia, um, we got invited to a film festival out there and we got one ticket between two of us. So, uh, yeah, we, we went half as on one ticket and then the other one the person got never had a free ticket. And, um, yeah, it was probably about two years since I'd, we'd finished it and we saw it with an audience and, yeah, I burst into tears at the end of it because it was always something that all I could see were the faults and the distance that I'd, um, that I'd had from two years' distance made me realise, wow, it was, like, really good. Yeah, just burst into tears then. So that was when I kind of knew it was all right. But, I mean, cause, because the screening in Sheffield we had, the the premiere, which had about 100, you know, local people, and they were all the people that were involved in the film, like, you know, Ben Moon was there and... And Jerry and blah blah, every everybody who starred in the film was there, and it was like a really good party atmosphere, and people spontaneously clapping 
throughout the whole film. It wasn't just at the end. It was just like after the sequences, like the stuff, the history section, both the three, all, all three of the musical sections in the history section, people just applauded at the end. Like so much of the film was being lost. But um, yeah, I was just sat there. And, and Mark as well, just thinking, oh God, we could have edited that better. Why did we wobble? Why was the camera wobble there and all this sort of stuff, all these problems that we could see, but nobody else could. So even though it was like a revelation, and I, I think probably I've only had, had three or four screenings in my lifetime that will ever, you know, that have matched up to it. Um, yeah, you're just thinking, oh, I could be better. There's Bentley. Hello, Neil. He's promised me that last question. <laughs> Come on here. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can. It's all right. I'm being interviewed about hard grit. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks to Seb, Niall and Rich for their time on putting this together. Um, I'd love to be able to say that you could stream Hard Grit, but you can't. Um, you might be able to get hold of a DVD or VHS copy. Uh, you'd also have to track down a VHS player, I guess. Um, but there'll be a lot of them kicking around. Thanks also to Mike Check, who cut some of the sections of the film for me that were used. Factor 2 now has a newsletter called Off Belay. You can find it at factor2.co.uk. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening. Hey. I can't get you out of my head. It's all in the mind. <laughs> yeah. Yes! Yes! <laughs> <laughs>